A genre film isn't so much a type as it is an expectation. In gangster pictures, we can expect guns. Westerns, we expect horses. Comedies, jokes. And superheroes, spandex. As for the musical, if a boy and a girl like each other, they sing together. And if things work out, they dance with each other. It's all high-spirited, melodic PG fun. So how do we explain Cabaret, Bob Fosse's multi-Oscar winner from 1972? Happy to see you, Set in 1930s Berlin, it features Nazis, anti-Semitism, prostitution, transvestitism, a bisexual menage a trois, and an abortion. Not even the sound of music went that far. But, like the sound of music, cabaret is rooted in real life. It all started in 1929, when Cambridge University dropout Christopher Isherwood went to Germany to work as a private tutor. After a two-year stint, he travelled about Europe and for a while went to China, before heading to the United States in 1939, where he published Goodbye to Berlin. It was a semi-autobiographical account of the two years he spent there, and of all the characters Isherwood created, the most vivid was inspired by his friendship with an English nightclub singer, Jean Ross, whom he remoulded as the divinely decadent Sally Bowles. In 1951, Isherwood's book was adapted by playwright John Van Druten into a Broadway play, I Am a Camera, with Julie Harris winning a Tony Award for her performance as Sally Bowles. Then, in 1966, John Kander and Fred Ebb took Isherwood's book and Van Druten's play and turned the story into a Tony Award-winning musical. Which means, Fosse's film is based on a musical that is based on a play which was adapted from the book. But Cabaret was not the first film made from Isherwood's memoir. In 1955, Van Druten's play was adapted into a film of the same name by John Collier, with Julie Harris reprising her Tony award-winning role. Last night he made me feel as if I was some marvellous kind of nymph, miles away from anywhere in the middle of the forest. Then the landlady came in and made the most boring remarks. I mean, I may not be absolutely exactly what some people call a virgin, that's no reason for her to call me what she called me, is it? I Am A Camera is a justifiably neglected film, and while watching it does feel like a waste of time, it does serve as a great reminder as to how many brilliant choices are needed to make a masterpiece. Bob Fosse's Cabaret is a masterpiece. You have to understand the way I am, mine hair. A tiger is a tiger, not a lamb, mine hair. You'll never turn the vinegar to jam, mine hair. So I do what I do. When I'm through, then I'm through. And I'm through. Toodaloo. Working from a script written by Jay Allen, 
Fosse's first big decision was to keep all but one of the musical numbers inside the Kit Kat Club and keep all the drama and real-life events outside. In that way, Kander and Ebb's songs serve as a Greek chorus, offering commentary and ironic counterpoint to what is going on elsewhere in Berlin. And for the one occasion Fosse concedes a song to the sunlight, it is to reveal the extent to which dark forces are taking root in Germany's hinterland. But gather together to greet the storm Tomorrow belongs to me But the real genius of Fosse's direction was to not present the Kit Kat Club as a safe retreat from an increasingly dangerous city. Fosse and his director of photography Geoffrey Unsworth, production designer Rolf Zehetbauer and costume designer Charlotte Fleming present the Kit Kat Club as an oasis of denial where the patrons are hysterically ignoring the world outside. And nowhere is that delusion more in evidence than in the wide-eyed performance of Liza Minnelli as Sally Bowles. What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Bowles' appearance is worth close consideration. In Isherwood's memoir, one of Bowles' sartorial signatures was deep green nail polish, a detail Isherwood had taken from his real-life friend, Jean Ross. But when Bowles performs on stage, the movie has her look and behave like three other people. Firstly, Bowles wears a bowler hat, a backless black waistcoat, black shorts, black tights and suspenders, and black heel shoes. And using a chair as her stage prop, she is referencing Marlene Dietrich's Lola Lola in Joseph von Sternberg's The Blue Angel. Not unusual for the early talkies, The Blue Angel was made both in German and English. But Bowles' appearance also resembles another character, this time from a silent movie released a year earlier. In 1929, Louise Brooks's Lulu sported a bob in G.W. Papp's masterpiece, Pandora's Box. Brooks's hairstyle, known in German as Der Bubikopf, is arguably the most iconic and imitated in cinema history. In Cabaret, Bowles goes for a more exaggerated version. But despite those cinematic antecedents, it is Liza Minnelli herself who provides the third reference. It is impossible to look at and listen to her performing, without recalling her mother, Judy Garland's performance in Summer Stock from 1950. There, Garland wears a black fedora, black blazer, black stockings and high heels. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. Amid all that, it could be easy to lose sight of what the film is really about. But Fosse's direction offers an overriding reason why Nazism was able to flourish. Denial. Denial in the face of danger is a profound paradox. But Cabaret's expression of that denial is made all the more complex by Joel Grey's portrayal of the club's master of ceremonies. The MC has no name. 
No one in the club ever refers to him, even as the MC. Instead, he just exists as a sort of perma-will-o'-the-wisp, appearing and disappearing at crucial moments to remind us and distract the characters from the paradox. The MC knows precisely what is going on, which means that he is not so much in denial as he is indifferent. Which means his behaviour is not so much a stoic live-and-let-live attitude as it is a demonic live-and-let-others-die. And it appears that the more dangerous things get outside the club, the more in denial the club's performers and patrons insist on being. The makeup they all wear gets heavier and heavier until it becomes a mask and eventually they don't resemble people as much as they do puppets, mindless mannequins slipping ever deeper into delusion. Cabaret tells of a time and a place where humanity's darkest capacities were taking hold. Germany 1931 was in turmoil. Banks went bust, the hyperinflation of the 20s was replaced by steep deflation, and unemployment reached almost 30%. Capitalism was failing, and this new thing called parliamentary democracy was in a state of near collapse. The government couldn't even afford to pay unemployment benefit. I don't believe in historical determinacy, but these elements provided fertile ground for the sprouting of Nazism in the Weimar Republic. Right from the start of his publication in 1920, Hitler's propagandist newspaper, Völkische Beobachter, peddled false news, conspiracy theories and virulent anti-Semitism. If all the Jews are bankers, then how can they be communists too? Subtle. Very subtle, Brankost. If they can't destroy us one way, they try the other. You don't really believe that, do you? But you read it every day in the Völkische Beobachter. That ridiculous Nazi tripe. It is an established fact, Herr Roberts, that there exists a well-organized international conspiracy of Jewish bankers and communists. The truth is that when the Nazis secured power in 1933, Jewish people accounted for less than 1% of the German population. But the wider truth is that the campaign to remove Jewish people from all aspects of German life was well pronounced even before Hitler came to power. His 1925 publication, Mein Kampf, violently set out those aims. From Chapter 12, the nationalisation of our masses will succeed only when, aside from all the positive struggle for the soul of our people, their international poisoners are exterminated. So it was public knowledge, which belies the tiresome and fallacious claim that no one knew what was happening. Yes, later the Holocaust was a vast operation carried out by the Nazi regime, but it relied upon a significantly compliant public to remove all non-Aryans from all aspects of German life. In order for this to happen, be they civil servants, private businesses or members of the general public, posters had to be printed, birth certificates checked, lists drawn up, children schooled, speeches broadcast, newspapers published, the streets policed, arrests made, 
property confiscated, deportations overseen, trains driven and camps operated. Which means entire industries and municipal administrations were involved in the running of transit camps, work camps, concentration camps and death camps. The Nazis had over 15,000 of them in operation. Nationwide and on a daily basis, prisoners were transported on trains and marched in full view of the civilian population from stations through towns and villages en route to the various camps in Germany and its occupied territories. The economies of those towns and villages, as well as the German war economy itself, relied heavily on slave labourers interned in these camps. Many who, against all odds, survived the camps only to be forced near the end of the war on death marches, again often in full view of the civilian population. At the height of the mass murder, people in towns and villages neighbouring the death camps adopted wearing handkerchiefs about their faces to deny the stench that was emanating from the incinerators. Another lie is the claim that soldiers risk being shot for disobeying orders. The Nazis were terrifyingly efficient at many things, and one thing they were meticulous at was keeping records. And since 1945, not one notice, file, report or document shows a single person was punished with his life for failing to carry out such executions. In fact, the Commandant and Generals within both the SS and the Wehrmacht paid close attention to how their men reacted to the orders for mass murder. Noting that it affected their overall morale negatively, that they became less efficient in killing, the Nazi regime invented an even more depersonalised, industrialised method for committing murder on a mass scale. The gas chamber. The general public, not just in Germany, were complicit both in the Holocaust and the genocide of other peoples defined as aliens or enemies. Although a dictatorship, the Nazi regime could not have happened, nor been able to continue, had there not been a significant amount of popular support for the brutal, repressive measures they very publicly and very regularly demonstrated. This is evident not only in public participation in the ritual humiliations in town squares or villages of enemies of the people, but the willingness of so many to carry out small but vital tasks towards the implementation of the final solution. Members of the public volunteered to sew prison uniforms, draw up inventories of confiscated Jewish properties and purchase Jewish people's furniture after their ejection from their own homes. It must be said that not everyone in Germany was entirely aware of what exactly was happening in the occupied Eastern Territories. But the violence began long before Auschwitz II existed. And it first happened on German people's doorsteps. Or to be more accurate, those defined by the Nazi regime as being German. It is a cliché to say that an ageing masterpiece is more relevant than ever. But in the case of Cabaret, that cliché will always be the truth. Denial and indifference allow bigotry, xenophobia, propaganda and fake news to flourish. And the price for our democratic freedoms is to be constantly vigilant to those threats. <laughs>